49, beginning to read at verse 1. Page 735. The Servant of the Lord. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now, the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength, he says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, In the time of my favour I will answer you, And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth, burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for
No. Put the pulpit mic on it. That'll be all right. All right. That's fine. Okay. Good. <coughs> Soon after I was uh, ordained, um, about three years after I, I suppose, so I was ordained in 1977, I moved from my first job in ministry as a curate, that's what Will is doing here uh, in St Andrews at the moment, to be in charge of a small church in quite a prosperous part of North London, where amongst other things the vicar was made an honorary member of the golf club. Uh, I only mention that because I enjoyed it and because it showed that they valued their ministers, as I'm, sh- as I'm, sure, you all, I'm sure you do as well, although that hasn't happened to me here yet. But, <laughs> but uh, on my first Sunday in this church, uh, I asked the congregation, which was quite a small congregation and therefore it was possible to be more possible to be interactive than it is here, I asked them what they expected of their vicar. And they shouted things back to me from the congregation. I dread to think what would happen if I did that in St. Andrews. But anyway, anyway, the list got longer and longer as my sense of inadequacy standing in the pulpit grew. Uh, so I was pleased this week as I was thinking about Isaiah 49, which I haven't forgotten about, uh, to come across uh, this uh, description of uh, what a minister of a church ought to look like from one of the, um, in one of the books that J. John, the evangelist, has put together to help preachers. It's basically a joke book, but, um, uh, but this isn't quite a joke, but it, you'll get the point. He says this, the results of a computerized survey of the traits of the perfect minister indicates the following characteristics. Preaches for exactly 20 minutes and includes all the Bible has to say on the sermon subject condemns everybody's sin except yours and never says anything anyone might disagree with. Works from 6 a.m. to midnight and gets eight hours sleep and stays healthy. (laughs) Is also the cleaner after each service. Prepares sermons every week for 40 years and never repeats an idea, an illustration or a joke. (laughs) Earns £100 a week wears good clothes, buys good books, drives a new car, and gives £50 a week from his own salary to the poor. (laughs) Is 38 years old and has been in the ministry for 25 years. (laughs) Half of his hair is youthful and the other half is grey to give him that distinguished look. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends all of his time with senior citizens. He's a close member, he's a close friend of every church member. He smiles all the time with a straight face because he has a sense of humour which keeps him seriously dedicated to his work. <laughs> he makes 15 visits a day to church families and visits all the sick every day. <laughs> he spends all of his time evangelising and is always in the office when you need him. <laughs> he has four children that never get in trouble and a wife who cooks cordon bleu like Delia Smith. He's written books on prayer like Joyce Huggett, and he looks like Madonna without anyone ever feeling jealous. Well, you can see that I fall somewhat short of that ideal. My wife does cook like Delia Smith, but how am I going to look like Madonna even wearing this thing I'm struggling with? (laughs) Apart from that, it's a cakewalk, really, but anyway, there you go. Now, we've seen in this series on mission that God created human beings with the potential to be imperfect, of course, to share in his kingly rule over the world. 
that the response that he looks for is one of trust and obedience to his word. Exemplified in the Old Testament by the far from perfect Abraham. I doubt you would have made him your vicar. He called Sarah uh, and Abraham to step out in faith and to enter a new and promised land. And God's promise, you will recall, to Abraham in Genesis 12 was that all the people, all the nations, would be blessed through Abraham and Sarah's offspring. And that seemed highly unlikely since Sarah was barren. It was also highly unlikely because then each tribe, each nation, each people had their own particular God. And the own particular God of a people had nothing to do with another tribe or another nation. So it was quite extraordinary to think that the God of one people would also become the God of other people and that they would be a blessing to other people. That was a radical thing for people to believe at that time. But in due course, of course, the children of the patriarchs uh, became a great nation and through the drama of the exodus from Egypt and the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, they develop an increasing sense of of being God's particular people. We looked at that last week. They sensed, they knew, it was revealed to them that they were the people of destiny. They were the people of the Holy Land, the ones through whom God will work his purposes out. But of course, like the minister in J. John's survey, the standard that God sets them is too high for them. They don't live up to the mark. And in common with great individuals of the Old Testament, the patriarchs themselves, Moses, the judges, dramatically so, Saul, David, Solomon, the people fail collectively just as we see individual people in the Old Testament failing individually. Yesterday afternoon I I went out onto the field next to where we live to watch a a rugby match uh, taking place. Now, I'm going to be careful what I say because I happen to know that at least one of the people playing in that rugby match is here this evening. So, Gus, I apologise for what is about to follow. But I couldn't help noticing in this rugby team, uh, in this rugby match, that one team was very much better than the other. In fact, it was Gus's team. Gus is here tonight, so that's all right. So I'm being nice about you at this point, Gus. And um, time and time again, though, though they were a much better team, when a try seemed almost certain, when it looked as if they couldn't go wrong, it was noticeable in this somewhat chaotic rugby match that somebody would make a silly mistake. A pass would go astray. A pass would be dropped. A tackle would be missed. On one particular spectacular occasion... One of the team was running in to score a try when he just tripped up and fell over. Now, Gus's team should have won by a very large margin. But, in fact, they managed to give the opposition a bit of a chance, although they ended up in front. However well they aspired to play, they kept on falling short of the standard they were setting themselves. It would be an interesting team talk in the dressing room at the end, I imagine. How can salvation, how can salvation come through flawed people? How can God bring salvation to all the peoples of the world when the people through whom he is revealing himself 
consistently make mistakes and fall short of the mark. Their disobedience led to exile from the Holy Land, years of captivity in Babylon. What is God going to do about this situation when people constantly fall into sin? Same issue was faced in the interregnum six years ago. How can you find the perfect vicar? How can we find someone to fulfill this job description? St. Andrews will still be looking when the Lord returns. How can we find the one who will keep God's word and bring the rescue and salvation which mankind needs? Who is equal to this task? This is Isaiah's great concern in these chapters as he observes the collapse of Israel's hopes. What hope can there be for these people who fall short of the mark so often? There seems to be no human being capable of truly imaging God. No man or woman who will trust and be obedient enough to share the kingly rule that God longs for us to share with him. Even when God makes a particular call on an individual or a group, they turn out not to be equal to the task. All mankind, it seems, is destined to judgment. All mankind, it seems, is destined to permanent exile from God's presence. Banishment from his love. It seems hopeless. But actually, what is revealed here in Isaiah is that the hope has not died. Victory is still achievable. Just turn back for a moment in Isaiah to chapter 19 and verses 24 and 25. Verses that it is easy to read and pass by, but which I want us just to look at a little bit this evening. I'll read from verse 23. It's on page 703. He's talking of the great day of salvation. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Now this is one of the key passages, prophetic passages of the Old Testament. Actually, it resonates with the language of Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham receives the covenant and the promise that all the nations of the world be blessed through him. God's blessing extending to the nations. Here you see Egypt, Egypt, the place where Israel was in captivity. Assyria, the conqueror who took them into exile even before Babylon. These are going to be blessed together with Israel. Great um, scholar Chris Wright and uh, great apologist for the Christian faith in our own generation writes this about this verse. He says this, I find this one of the most breathtaking pronouncements of any prophet and certainly one of the missiologically most significant texts in the Old Testament. The identity of Israel will be merged with that of Egypt and Assyria. 
such that the Abrahamic promise is not only fulfilled in them, but through them. Now this is truly remarkable. This means that God's mission to bring back the nations, to win people back into relationship with him, to lead people more numerous than the sand on the seashore back to paradise, that mission, brothers and sisters, from wherever you come in the world this evening, that mission is going to be fulfilled in us, whatever racial grouping we come from, and it is going to be fulfilled through us, Jew and Gentile alike. Now, I know we're familiar with that, but let me assure you, in the context of Revelation, this is a truly remarkable thing that God has done. We could react as the Virgin Mary reacted when she received the promise that she would bear the baby Jesus. We could look back, we could look at God and say, how can that be? How can that be? And the answer, of course, is how can it be? How can all the nations be blessed? How can Egypt and Assyria become the means through which the world is blessed? The answer is to be found in Isaiah 49. You may never find a perfect vicar from the sons of Adam. You may never find a perfect saviour from fallen mankind. But look at verse 7 of chapter 49. The Lord is sending his servant, his rescuer, his redeemer, his chosen one, his Messiah. This is what the Lord says. The Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, has chosen you. The servant is coming. It's as if uh, Oxford Harlequin's second 15, shambolically thrashing about in the mud on the field down here, get a phone call to say, don't worry lads, it's going to be a lot better next week. Johnny Wilkinson has just transferred from Newcastle to Oxford Harlequin's second 15. Rescue is on its way. I fear, Gus, it will not happen. Isaiah goes on to say that this uh, rescuer, this servant, this Messiah is not only the one who's going to rescue Israel, but he says, I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, that you might bring my salvation to the whole world. Where is this salvation going to extend to? The end of verse 6. It's going to extend to the ends of the earth. It's going to extend to Crick Road and Park Town. It's going to extend to Summertown and Cutslow. It's going to extend to Headington and Jericho, to Kidlington and Waterways, to Turkey and to Thailand, to South America and to Scotland. It's going to extend everywhere. And do you see how it relates to the shared kingly rule? Human rulers, human kings are going to recognize where true kingly authority lies. The rulers of the human institutions themselves are going to submit to God's rule over their lives. This is salvation. And every listener, every reader, must ask, obviously, as they read Isaiah 49, they must ask, 
Who is this servant to whom all rulers will bow? Who is this Messiah who will bring all the nations into God's covenant of love and peace and justice? Well, of course, we know. We have gathered here this evening, as millions of others have around the world, in his name. Well over 2,000 years ago, Isaiah wrote these things. And those years have come and gone. And every day, every day, more and more become followers of this Jesus. Every day, the servant of the Lord is revealed in the hearts and minds of people all around the world. And his flock is coming home. The Old Testament, and this has been a series of four sermons on mission in the Old Testament, the Old Testament ends with these writings of the prophets. As you know, the major prophets and then the minor prophets, as they're called. Isaiah is, in a sense, the most accessible of them. And, and throughout the writings of the prophets, there is this heady mixture of despair and of hope. Despair for the godlessness into which people repeatedly fall and hope because God has not not abandoned us and he will save. Our mission, as we move now in this series from Old Testament to New Testament, our mission begins with a recognition of who the servant of the Lord is and surrender to Jesus as Lord. We surrender Because however hard we try in our own strength, we fall short of the mark. We long, I am sure, to attempt great things for God and to expect great things from God. But have you discovered, you must have discovered, how your sin, your human frailty, your tendency to go your own way, not his, your inbuilt rebelliousness lures you away from doing what God wants? Abraham knew that. The people of Israel certainly knew that. Did you notice, as Jill spoke so movingly of her call to go to Thailand last week, how she said what she asked us to pray for was that she wouldn't be falling away from her discipleship, her love of God, her closeness to Christ. Because she knew that danger. She knows it. And God knows I know that only too well as well. So what great news the gospel is. What great news. Let me remind you as I close this uh, little part of this series. Let me remind you how good the gospel is. Just turn over the page to Isaiah 53. And a verse that you may well be familiar with. Isaiah 53 and verse 6. The despair and hopelessness that is in the prophet's mind comes out. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Despair. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As we sometimes sing in Lent, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Yes, this is the great news. God has sent a perfect saviour to die as our substitute on a Roman cross so that God's anger 
rightly directed at you and me for our persistent failure, God's anger might be deflected from us onto him. Justice satisfied, love maintained, forgiveness offered, the spirit poured into our hearts, and a lifelong mission set before us wherever we might be. This is the great news we have for the world. This is freedom. This is hope. This is purpose. This is something to live for. This is actually the abundant life that Jesus talked about. And the appropriate, the appropriate response to such great news is to worship God. Samuel.